0: This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, You was a number.
0: And the inmate understood that. If you're out there, there's past lay down those inmates that were here in the institution during an execution it had an impression on them that maybe I was still with them to some extent maybe they don't think about it anymore but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure they wouldn't let me out until I get it back to stuff. <laughs> seven months later I give it back to them that was one of the of the problems we ran into is you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joking and drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd have a plan there to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated here. My name's Anthony. I'm talking to Sky. How's it going, Sky?
0: Things are good. Semester's just about over. I just have final papers to work on. So and and then I'm reading um, like two books a day. So yeah, wow. things are good. How about nice. you?
1: Nice, <laughs> not too bad. Just had a great Thanksgiving last yeah. week, and uh, just looking forward to a nice holiday season.
0: The holiday season, I think, is going to be a good time this year. Kind of I hope everyone, so, yeah. I think, is a little bit more secure in visiting family and and everything like that so yeah yeah it'll be fun
1: oh definitely are you coming back to Boise or Idaho I
0: am I am I'll be home for a month so I'm very excited to be back in the cold because it's supposed to get up to (laughs) 75 at the end of this week and I'm really upset about it (laughs) nice so anyway (laughs) let's uh let's do our couple today I think that they're actually a really fascinating couple
1: You might find that fascinating. I found it so irritating. Oh my gosh. I mean,
0: they're both. They're both.
1: I would not have a double date with this couple. I'd worry about (laughs) who was paying for the meal and everything else. So we should probably just start with our sources. Yeah. All right. Well, I use the prison file from the Idaho State Archives, collection of digitized Idaho statesmen from the Boise Library, newspapers.com, ancestry.com, an article on mycompanies.fandom.com on the Eclipse Machine Company. The majority of this is honestly just his prison file, so... Mm-hmm.
0: And then for me, I have her inmate file from the Idaho State Archives, the digitized Idaho Daily Statesman articles, newspapers.com articles, and ancestry.com records, both of which were actually integral to finding anything about mildred i also have cityofnampa.us the Idaho.gov, and specifically the canyon county fact sheet destinationcaldwell.com an article by annie laurie bird in the lewiston morning tribune from 1962 called canyon county has roots in violent past idahoarchitectureproject.org and wikipedia
1: so i will start with the gentleman of this couple, Mr. Frank L. Wilcox, number 3235. And I have to say, I had a very difficult time with him. He came in under the name Frank Wilcox, but I'm pretty certain his real name was Royal Wheeler. He was supposedly born on July 31st, 1897 in Geneva, New York. There's even a question mark behind that. He was incarcerated all around the country throughout his life and told each person at each institution, a different story. So everything I say about this individual is from what pretty much prison authorities could gather on him. Uh, He stated that his father died when he was three years old. So around 1900, if he was born in 1897 and his mother died when he was 21. And I couldn't verify any of this info and strangely his deceased mother wrote many letters to the parole and pardon board and the governor of Idaho so I'm not sure how that happens but uh it happens during his stay and post-incarceration he stated that he grew up in a Baptist family regularly attended church and Sunday school and he had nine years of education and apprenticed and worked as an electrician when he was an early teenager, he worked on a hay and grain farm in Wellsboro, Pennsylvania. All right, Skye, so that's Frank's kind of early life. You want to talk about Mildred and how they met?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Mildred Wilcox, number 3234, she was born Mildred Lulu Alberta Moon on July eleventh, 1898 in New York to Jacob Moon and Minnie McDonald Moon. Now... Just as Anthony had trouble finding much about Frank or Royal, this has probably been one of the toughest research excursions of the season. I'll explain why that is. So the first thing that I'm... I'm 98% sure that Minnie MacDonald Moon is Mildred's mother. It took me probably two weeks just to sort of sort out the mother and then the family tree that comes later. It's a whole thing. So when I originally wrote the biography for Mildred, I had apparently somewhere found information that Minnie, who also sometimes was called Mary, had been sent to the Central Islip Mental Hospital... But I couldn't find that information again, so I don't know if I maybe got her confused with another Mary Moon or if that was in a newspaper article that I had found that I somehow didn't find this time. So I don't want to say that's for sure what happened because I'm not sure where I found that information. The other problem that I had is that throughout the records, Minnie is variously known as Minnie Newber or Minnie Newberry, Mary M. Moon, and Mary McDonald. And then she actually ends up marrying a Valder, and I'll get into that in a second. And so she basically had, like, four or five different names throughout various records. So it took me forever. So anyway, 98% sure Mary and Jacob are Mildred's parents. Then Mildred also had one older brother named Harold, who had been born in 1895, Soon after Mildred was born, Jacob, her father, left the family. He walked out and he actually went to work in other parts of New York. I found his yearly record from New York State and he was living by himself working as a factory worker in a completely different part of New York. And many actually would tell Mildred that Jacob had died, not that he had left, because when she came into the prison, she stated that her dad was dead mm-hmm. and that he had died the same year that basically he left. So in the 1900 census, Minnie was working as a housekeeper for a farmer in Seneca, New York, with Mildred, who was only about a year old, in tow. Harold was not listed in the census, so I'm not really sure where he was. As I already said earlier, between 1901 and 1904, Minnie married a man named John Valder. So as I said, it took me forever, because Minnie Valder, as Mildred's mother, Mildred herself marries a Valder, and so when I originally saw... Minnie valder i thought that it was the grandmother anyway it's wow it is oh, so confusing so I, I i lay it out later but basically i didn't even think that Minnie valder and Minnie moon were the same person uh-huh. for a really really long time so anyway <sighs> Jeez. yeah it was a it was a mess so anyway <laughs> with this marriage to john valder Minnie ends up having five more children, so Mildred has five more half-siblings over the next 16 years. She has a brother, Arthur, sisters Isidine and Evelyn, and brothers Frederick and George. So on her intake form, Mildred claimed that her mother died when she was 13, around 1911, so we see sort of that lying coming into play here that we also saw with Frank. But again, we know it's not true. Was it to protect her family? Was she just lying? Many her mother didn't die until 1967. Uh. Mildred was raised in the Episcopal Church. She attended Sunday school and attended secular school only until the fifth grade. I don't know why she didn't go further than that. She claimed that she left her parents home between 13 and 14 years old, again, supposedly when her mother died. Don't know why there wasn't really any reason for her to do so. So again, that may have been a lie. And finally, I don't have any record of their meeting, but... We do know that when she was a month shy of 18 years old, she married Royal A. Wheeler Jr. on June 29, 1916, in Monroe, New York. So they get married. 1916. Their son Frank Wheeler was born July 11th, 1917, which is actually Mildred's 19th birthday, in Rochester, New York. I actually found a lot in their early lives in New York, and it is fascinating. So. On December 30th, 1917, an article appeared in the Democrat and Chronicle a newspaper from Rochester and it says quote, husband asks forgiveness. When Royal Wheeler, 20 years old, was brought into police court yesterday on a charge of non-support, he asked his wife to forgive him. He said he would provide a good home if given an opportunity. His wife, Mildred Wheeler, lives at number 34 Center Park. The couple have a child. Mrs. Wheeler complained that her husband had not supported her since they were married and two months ago he abandoned her altogether. When arrested in a village not far from here, he was arrested living with another young woman, end quote. Oh. Ew, I know. So about 11 days later, a follow-up article appeared in the Democrat Chronicle stating that Royal appeared again in court, but Mildred, quote, said she would forgive her husband, who appeared ready to provide a home for his little family, end quote. <sighs> and things seem to have gone well. They, they seem to sort of get their act together. And they actually had another son, Harold, who was born on August 26, 1919. The family remained in New York for several more years. In April 1922, a warrant was issued for the arrest of Royal for stealing a car. I didn't find anything more than that. You know, as Anthony said, he was arrested throughout the country. This makes sense. And then soon after this, according to Mildred, they moved to Walla Walla, Washington, but I couldn't find any evidence of them being in Washington because another document stated that in 1922, the family lived in Troy, Pennsylvania. So I'm not really sure what the timeline is there. And then the records I found by the end of 1922, definitely at the beginning of 1923, Mildred and Royal were living in Canyon County, Idaho.
1: While they were living and married in New York with their little family, Frank worked at, or Royal, depending on what you want to call him, worked in Oswego for the Willings Morrow Company and the Eclipse Machine Company. The Eclipse Machine Company was founded in Indianapolis, and they had a factory in Elmira Heights, New York, and made automobile, motorcycle, bicycle parts. And in July of 1920, he was arrested for stealing a car, And charged with grand larceny and sent to Elmira Reformatory as number 29256 under the name Roy Wheeler. And he was paroled pretty soon after and returned to work at the part manufacturing company until 1922, as Guy said, when he made his way west and... He stated that he went to Seattle, Washington, Portland, Oregon, Pendleton, Oregon, Salt Lake City, and they stopped in Drummond, Idaho, in the fall of 1922, and he worked at the Moore Ranch, and Drummond is just northeast of Rexburg on the Idaho-Wyoming border. And during these travels out west, it appears that they may have uh, been creative on how (laughs) they paid for things.
0: That is true, but before we get into the specifics... Should we take a pause and talk about some Canyon County history? Sure. Great. So, Canyon County is 604 square miles in southwestern Idaho, bordering Oregon and Ada County, where Boise is located. Prior to white exploration and settlement, the area was home to Shoshone-Bannock tribes. When explorers and settlers began to move in, relations between the two groups fluctuated from friendly to antagonistic. So according to a slightly outdated article written by Canyon County historian Annie Laurie Byrd from 1962, the Astor Party, which was one of the pioneer parties, was traveling from St. Louis in 1811. They came upon a native encampment near current-day Middleton, where unfortunately several members of the party were massacred. And about 40 years later, in 1854, another massacre happened at the same place. So in retribution for, especially this 1854 massacre, military troops found and lynched four natives. Byrd says they were, quote, four of the perpetrators, end quote, but there's no way of knowing besides the words of the troops if they were actually the perpetrators, if they were involved in the massacre or what the precipitating circumstances of the attack were. But after they lynched these four natives, quote, the gallows was left standing as a mute reminder of what white action could be expected if there were more such murders, end quote. So again, that's from the article that talks about the sort of violent past that that Canyon County had. So just a reminder, of course, that indigenous peoples and white settlers often butted heads and that the land was not given up easily. So in 1834, the Hudson Bay Company established Fort Boise near modern-day Parma, but it was abandoned in 1855. So this Fort Boise near Parma is a different Fort Boise than the one around which the city of Boise was built, which was established by the U.S. government in 1863. Then gold was discovered in the Boise Basin in 1862 and the Owyhee Mountains in 1863. And present Canyon County provided main highways from the gold fields. And so towns began to pop up along the Oregon Short Line Railroad, which connected Wyoming to Oregon as it was built beginning in 1883. And Caldwell, Parma, and Nampa all got their start along the Oregon Short Line Railroad. And so fun fact, nobody knows where the name Nampa comes from. Byrd agrees with other Nampa historians that Indians of the region were known to stuff their moccasins with sagebrush during cold weather, which would make their footprints bigger than normal. And the Shoshone word for footprint or moccasin is Namb, Mm N-A-M-B. And so they're sort of speculating if white settlers modified it and called it Nampa. But that's only speculation. And actually, the area of Nampa and Canyon County was originally part of Ada County. Then, on January 16, 1891, Frank Steunenberg, who was a resident of Caldwell and a representative from Ada County to the Idaho State Legislature, introduced House Bill 56, quote, to create and organize the county of Canyon and to define the boundaries of Ada County, end quote. So you may be asking, well, why call the county Canyon? Supposedly, it was because the Boise River ran through a small canyon near Caldwell, but there's some speculation that it was named for the Snake River Canyon, which forms a natural boundary of the county. So part of the proposal was making Caldwell the county seat, and of course many notable Caldwell citizens were sent to Boise to push the bill through. The people of Nampa, Star, Parma, Payette, and Emmett, as well as some smaller villages, protested against the boundaries, as well as protested the naming Caldwell as the county seat. And in fact, even the Idaho Daily Statesman objected to cutting Ada County to such a small size. Still, Bill 56 passed the House and Senate and was signed into law by Governor Norman B. Willey in March 1891, effective November 1892, and despite all of the objections, Caldwell was established as the county seat of Canyon County. Mm-hmm. Since then, portions of Canyon have been sliced off to make both Gem and Payette counties. Frank Steunenberg would continue his political career, I think, as we well know. He was elected governor in 1897, and I won't spoil things, but decisions he made during his governorship played an enormous role in the penitentiary and later in Canyon County history. So just real quickly, I actually found a letter from the canyon county prosecuting attorney in mildred's file and on the side of this letter are listed various statistics about canyon county in 1925 these are exact numbers from around the time that mildred and frank were in prison nice so canyon county has the following cooperative enterprises idaho equity exchange the idaho producers union idaho egg producers association idaho apple growers association nampa cooperative creamery company which was the largest creamery company in the state the mutual coal company and the cooperative publishing company canyon county has the second largest milk condensory in the world canyon county has nine banks with capital stock of five hundred and eighty-five thousand dollars. canyon county shipped in 1924 in full carload lots 1491 cars of potatoes 315 cars of lettuce onions and celery 570 cars of fruit 122 cars of eggs 17 cars of honey 423 cars of butter and condensed milk 966 cars of grain And 1,242 cars of livestock And then Canyon County has 8,918 children of school age 235 teachers 6 high schools 2 academies 2 colleges 51 churches 3 newspapers And 2,256 telephones huh. So this is, I think, a a fairly rural county, but it is working on modernizing, I think, as the boast of 2,256 telephones tells us. The population of Canyon County in 1920, when Mildred and Frank were in Canyon County, was 26,932, so it was probably over 27,000 by 1923. Now that I've taken us on this little journey, let's get back to Mildred and Frank. So February 9th, 1923, Mildred and Frank were arrested under the alias last name of Wilcox in Boise for forging, and they were each charged with a different fraudulent check that they cashed in Caldwell. And according to an Idaho Daily Statesman article from February 10, 1923, they were arrested in Boise because they fled from Emmett after merchants recognized the two from descriptions the sheriff's office sent out. So this means they were suspected of forgery before they were arrested, intimating that they had perhaps done this before. And in fact, the authorities accused them of running a, quote, certified check racket, end quote. When they were arrested, authorities found checkbooks with several checks ripped out of it, as was a pre-made stamp to pass off the check as certified by a bank cashier, and they had allegedly been running this racket for two months in Ada and Canyon counties. Mildred specifically was arrested for a forged, certified check from the Baker-Boyle National Bank of Walla Walla. It was made out for $17.50 and passed in the Del Monte Cash Grocery in Caldwell. The Idaho Daily Statesman claimed that she roused, quote, sympathy of the merchants by her condition, thus easily passed the certified checks, end quote, meaning she was actually pregnant when she was arrested. And the day of her arrest, she appeared in court. She pleaded guilty, but had her lawyer ask for clemency, quote, due to the woman's condition, end quote. Nevertheless, she received one to 14 years for forgery at the Idaho State Penitentiary. So it's Mildred's side of the story. Is there anything that was specific to Frank
1: Frank applied for a court-appointed lawyer, pled not guilty to the charge, and then when Mildred was being charged, he changes his plea from not guilty to guilty of unlawful possession of forged checks and pleads the specific charge of passing a forged check for $18.50 of the First National Bank of Oregon in Oregon City, used at the Con Clothing Company in Caldwell. He reveals that he had planned to have Mildred go down for it, knowing that because of her condition, Mildred would receive a parole pretty early and a lenient sentence.
0: The Idaho Daily Statesman alleged that the Wheelers planned that Mildred would plead guilty, quote, believing that the court would parole her due to her physical condition. She was then to assume responsibility for all the forgeries, relieving her husband of any obligation in the matter. They had thus planned that both would go free from punishment, end quote.
1: And the judge said that he was, quote, a day late in his assertions. Oh, no, we just made a huge mistake. He was sentenced and charged with unlawful possession of forged checks and sentenced to 3 to 14 years in the Idaho State Penitentiary.
0: Now, on the same day as Mildred's sentencing, her two children were taken to the children's home just down the street from the penitentiary by probation Mm -hmm. officer Catherine Wolfe. Warden Wheeler alleged that all of the Wilcoxes, even the children, were suffering from syphilis when they arrived at the penitentiary. Now, Snook was actually the warden when they came into the pen, and he didn't mention it. So I believe Wheeler was the warden when they left, or when yeah. someone at, like wrote and asked him about them. Warden Wheeler's claim is the only mention of them suffering from syphilis that I could find. I don't know if it's meant to be a stain on their character, because I would imagine if it was truly an issue, Snook would have mentioned something about it. Uh Uh, So I just thought that was kind of an interesting addition there. So Mildred entered the Idaho state penitentiary on February 9th, 1923. So here are her statistics. Age when received 23 born in New York, 1898, July 11th legitimate occupation, housewife complexion, fair color of hair, reddish color of eyes, gray, blue conjugal relations were married has two children father living no died when prisoner was an infant less than one years old mother living no died when prisoner was 13 years old prisoner left parents home when between age 13 and 14 years old had religious instruction attended sunday school in the episcopal church was not a member of any church at the time She could read and write, and again, she said that she attended school to the fifth grade. Name and address of her nearest relative, she listed as her husband, Frank Wilcox, state penitentiary Boise. Peculiarity in build and feature, was short and squatty. (laughs) Just so mean. Condition of her teeth, irregular but good. Size of boot, six. Property found on convict one ring. Parents born in, don't know. And she said that they had lived in Idaho about one year. So um, what sort of statistics do we find on Franks?
1: F.L. Wilcox, number 3235, alias, hundreds of them, bolded, received February 10th, 1923, so the next day, crime, unlawful possession of forged checks, Sentence 3 to 14 years, received at the age of 25, and he said he was born in Geneva, question mark, New York, July 31st, legitimate occupation, electrician, and served apprenticeship. Five feet, six inches tall. He had a light complexion. His hair was light, but uh, you'll see from his mugshot that he was bald. Blue eyes. He was married with two children. Father died when he was three years old. Mother died when he was 21 years old. He was raised Baptist, received religious instruction, and went to Sunday school and still attended church. He attended nine years of schooling. He was intemperate, which means he drank excessively. Former imprisonment simply says jails. Name and address of nearest relatives, as Mrs. Mildred Wilcox, Boise State Penitentiary. Regular building features his teeth were fair, no beard was worn, he had a watch and 45 cents on him when he arrived. His parents were born in the U.S., and he lived in Idaho one year. On his Bertillon, we see he had a W tattooed on the inside of his left forearm near his elbow. And he had three small scars on the back of his neck, and his left pinky is broken.
0: Do you think the W is for Wheeler, and that they had to come up with another W last name? So they weren't like, hey, buddy, what do you have a giant W on your forearm for?
1: (gasps) Wilcox. Yeah, Wilcox. That's my name. Yeah, I think that (laughs) that might have been something that he would do. And the notes provided to Warden Cuddy from the prosecuting attorney in notes on his background Quote, "He openly admits that he has stolen several cars. The new car which he was using at the time of arrest was stolen at Salt Lake, if our investigation regarding the same is correct." End quote. and asking about his criminal tendencies, the prosecutor wrote, quote, "a hardened criminal of long standing." That he was neither industrious or frugal, and he was an habitual criminal and menace to society. These crimes extended over many weeks. They were carefully planned and boldly executed, end quote. And in stating the details of his crime, he wrote that, quote, all evidence points to them having worked in other communities prior to coming here, but we have no positive proof, end quote. They're definitely uh, skewed towards, don't trust this individual. He is a hardened and skilled criminal, and he should spend a long time in the Idaho State Penitentiary.
0: Mm -hmm. And what was his time in the penitentiary like? Do Do we know?
1: No, actually. I... Did not really find any write-ups. He wrote to the uh, parole board in 1925, trying to promise that he would make good. And he wrote, quote, I am sorry I've done as I have, but I cannot change my past. I have been very foolish. I have three little boys that need my help. I am in poor health and need medical treatment pretty bad. If I am paroled, I am quite sure I can get a job herding sheep. I am sure I will not make another mistake. It may interest you to know that when I have gained my health and have enough money to do so, I wish to graduate from the Salvation Army Training College at San Francisco, California, to devote the rest of my life to God. Number 3235 Frank L. Wilcox, end quote. About a year after writing this, he was given a conditional pardon on October 8th, 1926, quote, provided the authorities of Elmira, New York State Reformatory take him into custody. Hmm end quote and so warden wheeler furnished him with six dollars and he was released
0: in 2021 the idaho state historical society is celebrating 140 years of service to idahoans as the trusted source in protecting idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair. And the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973.
1: Stay tuned. A lot of them put in there for forgery. A lot of them. I know an inmate was showing me one day, he told me he worked with me in the commissary. He said, Mr. off. I'll tell you how to get rich real quick. I said, How's that? He said, Well, go out and work for a farmer for a dollar an hour, it worked for eight hours, it quit. And hoping that he would pay you the check. So he gives you a check for $8. Okay, and you get ready to cash that check. All you have to do is put a knot behind the 8 and put a Y on the 8. 80 is still 8. And then you have a check for $80. That's what they did.
0: When Mildred arrived. The Canyon County prosecuting attorney L.D. Hyslop described Mildred as, quote, a hardened criminal of long standing, end quote, and regarded her as a habitual criminal and a menace to society. About a month after she arrived at the state penitentiary, authorities must have considered her pregnancy advanced enough that staying at the pen was not an option. So on March 15th, 1923, she was sent to the Salvation Army home, also called the Booth House, in the North End neighborhood of Boise. Now, the Booth House was built and designed by the Salvation Army as a maternal hospital for single mothers. And it was there that her third son, Ronald Edward Wheeler, I don't even think they really tried to hide his real last name, that he was a Wheeler. He was born at the Booth House on June 21st, 1923. Mildred actually only briefly returned to the penitentiary after his birth. She served almost her entire sentence at the Salvation Army home with baby Ronald. She was returned to the pen on February 17th, 1924, and so she actually had been out for almost an entire year at the Salvation Army home, and she was granted a parole less than a month later when the parole board met on March 5th, 1924. As far as I could tell, she didn't write any letters to the pardon board like we see in other inmates, like Frank even did, or if she did, it wasn't saved in her file, and she was paroled on March 21st, 1924. She served one year, one month, and 12 days, though really she only spent one month and 12 days within the walls of the women's ward.
1: Wow, yeah, Yeah. and Frank would spend two more years before his release, so wow, yeah.
0: And then there seems to be some confusion, especially on Warden Wheeler's part, as to what happened when she was released. Mm -hmm. So Warden Wheeler stated that Mildred and her children were sent to Columbus, Ohio. But on the official document announcing her parole, Warden Snook said that her parole would take effect when transportation to New York was available. Of course, she's been connected to New York her whole life. So I don't know why Warden Wheeler said she was released to Ohio. And so I think it's very interesting that Wheeler is taking such an active role in like describing her case, especially when it seems that he doesn't actually know much about it. Yeah. So I don't know why he insisted on sort of being so involved in that. That's her release. What happened to Frank after he got out?
1: Three days after his October 8th, 1926 release, he was appointed to work as a helper in the laundry of the Veterans Hospital in downtown Boise. So he wasn't taken back to Elmira, which I was so confused Hmm. about. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like they kind of paroled him. Both sites kind of paroled him. As long as he does good and he stays kind of within the shadow of the Idaho State Penitentiary, Hmm. he can stay out and work. And so he held the job. From October 11th, 1926, until November 17th, when he suddenly disappeared, along with four blankets, two shirts, two keys, an overcoat, a suitcase, $10 money order. And he had put down $25 on a $75 1918 Studebaker touring car, but made no other payments before fleeing Idaho. Hmm. He was arrested two months later in Omaha, Nebraska, on December 31st, 1926, for forgery as Royal Wheeler in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and suspected at Albion, Nebraska, of larceny of auto, forgery, cheating, and violation of the Mann Act. Uh, The Mann Act, also known as the White Slave Traffic Act, referred to the transfer of women across state lines with the intention of selling them into prostitution. Yeah. So... On January 13, 1927, the warden wrote to Sheriff Percy A. Lanson of Council Bluffs, Iowa, in response to a letter asking about Frank's background. And the warden begins with all the intake information and then continues with his views of the crime. Quote, this fellow, when pinched here, had a woman with him with a lot of children. He used the woman for passing the checks, and he would write certified checks, and the woman and children would push them on stores. The woman, who claimed to be his wife, was sent up with him. When received here, they all had syphilis. This fellow tried to escape mm. here. After being granted conditional pardon, Wilcox stole some government property and flew the coop. He sent letters to us, to his mother, at Corning, New York, and she had been sending in the said letters at regular intervals, these purporting to be his reports. This fellow is a professional car thief and forger and is about the most no-account piece of human flesh we have ever handled. There is no redeeming feature about him. We hope you give this fellow a long term and keep him safe for some time. And should you fall down in the trial, we will send for him and return him here. End quote. Wow. Yeah, so he was actually received at the state penitentiary in Fort Madison, Iowa on January 24th, 1927 for receiving stolen property and sentenced to five years in that institution.
0: This is fun. This is a fun episode.
1: It is. It's (laughs) Putting together
0: puzzle pieces together.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, what happens for the rest of Mildred's days?
0: Like I said, she immediately returned to New York with her sons. She got custody of all three of her sons, and she got married again. And I'm not sure when she and Frank and or Royal got divorced, but obviously they must have. So she married a man named... Arthur Milford Valder by 1925, because she is listed as his wife in the 1925 New York census. Now, remember, Valder is her stepfather's last name. So, you may be asking, how were they related? And let me tell oh. you, they're related in two different ways. Oh. So, that's... it took me, again, this took me forever to figure <laughs> out. Forever. Because there are a ton of Valders in New York at the time. So I have the all of, this, all of this written out. Hopefully this makes sense. If it doesn't, it's because it didn't make sense to me. The amount of pieces of paper I would, like, pull out and then try to write the side of the family tree that I understood and then how it connected. I think I had, like, six or seven pieces of paper because I would have to tear that one out uh... and, like, crumple it and throw to it because I was just like, I don't understand. So here we go. So Arthur Milford, who is Mildred's new husband, is the son of Arthur Valder, who is the son of John and Minnie Valder, Mildred's mom and stepdad. So, in other words, Arthur Milford is Mildred's half-nephew. So that's wow. one, one way that they're related. But that's not all. Oh. Because Arthur Milford's mother was Hattie Valder, whose maiden name was Moon. Which, if you remember, was also Mildred's maiden name. So Hattie, as far as I could ascertain, was Jacob Moon's sister. So, in other words... Arthur Milford was also Mildred's cousin. Wow. Yep. Yeah.
1: Keeping it in the family? Literally
0: keeping oh. it in the family. Oh. Yeah. So. Interesting. <laughs> uh, the headache that this family, and also the minute that I realized that Minnie Valder was Mildred's mother, I was like, oh no, do not tell me this is what I think it is. It was actually almost worse than what I thought it was. <laughs> So, um, and I think, too, that I originally thought in her biography that she had actually lived with Hattie after her mother got sent to the hospital. So I thought that she had lived with her aunt, which would have meant that she and Arthur lived in the same house at some point. I, again, I don't know where I found that information, and so I don't know if that was actually the case, but if that's the case, I don't know if I like, I think I like it even worse now. (laughs) It's not good. So anyway, regardless of these familial relations, the two of them got married, and they remain married for the rest of their lives, and their first daughter, Betty, was born in 1925. Then on March 26, 1925, Mildred wrote a letter to the Board of Pardons asking for a full pardon, and it reads, quote, In support of my application, wish to state that I was paroled on the 21st day of March, 1924, since which time I have led an honorable, useful life and have taken good care of my three children. I have had enough of crime and have resolved to become a model of propriety. I pray that your honorable body may grant my humble request and give me a full pardon in order that I may face the world again, end quote. So two days later, on March 28th, Canyon County Prosecuting Attorney L.D. Hyslop wrote the pardon board after hearing that Mildred was going to apply for a pardon, quote, "...personally, I consider these people as very dangerous criminals to have at large. Even the car that they were operating with provided to be a stolen car from the East. My humble opinion is that their application should be denied, as the safest place for such persistent criminals is in the penitentiary," end quote.
1: Huh.
0: But apparently, Mildred's argument was more compelling, and she was officially pardoned on July 2nd, 1925. Another daughter, Harriet, was born in 1928, and at some point between 1925 and 1930, Jacob, her father, reappeared in Mildred's life. And I don't know the circumstances behind this reconnection, and I wonder if she thought he was dead. And again, I guess the question is, was she simply lying? But again, it does seem to match up the fact that he supposedly died when she was an infant to when he left and worked elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So that actually seems legit to me. But anyway, I wonder, like, was it a shock for her to find out that he was still alive? And why did he wait 30 years to reconnect? And of course, these are questions that I don't have answers to. But in the 1930 census, Jacob was living with Mildred and Arthur in Geneva, New York. Then in 1929, Warden Wheeler received a letter from a Gertrude Valder, her sister. In- again, this Valder came in and I was like, where the heck does she fit? <laughs> Gertrude Valder was Mildred's sister-in-law. And Gertrude wrote from Rochester, New York, to Warden Wheeler quote, Dear sir, will you kindly answer my letter and tell me if Mildred Wheeler, Royal Wheeler's wife, a man that is in there now, was in prison about five years ago? She has stolen things from me, and I am enclosing a stamp for the return letter, hoping you will answer at once. End quote. Uh. And Wheeler replied, of course, confirming that Mildred and Royal had been in the penitentiary. And again, this is where he claims that she had several little children when she left here. She had three and they were all suffering from syphilis. So again, don't know how the situation with Gertrude was resolved. Eventually, they actually kind of get over it, their family, and so they kind of move on. Family in more ways than one. Uh Uh, (laughs) So Mildred had another daughter, Margaret, who was born in 1932, a son named Robert Arthur Valder, born in 1934, and a son, John, who was also known as Jack, born in 1937. And then over the next 30 years, she appeared in sort of small newspaper clippings in Geneva and Rochester newspapers. So for one example, in 1937, the Daily Messenger from Diagua, New York, and it profiled her birthday party as gifts. She received a wristwatch from her son, Harold, and had dinner and cake with Gertrude Valder and her daughter, her in-laws, her children, and other various friends and family. So again, other than stealing from Gertrude, there is doesn't really seem to be any trouble from Mildred for the rest of her life. And Mildred Moonvalder died in Bennett, New York on June 9th, 1963, a month shy of her 65th birthday. And she is buried in Gorham Cemetery in Ontario County, New York, next to Arthur, who died in 1973. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Super interesting end of her life.
1: I wish I had more details about yeah. royals or Franks.
0: <laughs> so he was he was arrested with the woman, mm-hmm. and then they were kept in jail for that?
1: Yes, yeah. Okay. So he actually went to the prison in Fort Madison, Iowa, for receiving stolen property and sentenced to five years. And the Idaho warden wrote on May 9, 1930, that he would actually dismiss the retainer, the hold, on Frank Wilcox allowing federal authorities to, to take him for his federal violations once he was released from Iowa. Mm-hmm. Frank was still on parole, though, so Frank received a, a final complete pardon from the Iowa State Penitentiary on July 1st, 1931, so he could enter the U.S. Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, on December 1st, 1931.
0: And that's for the Violating the Mann Act, correct?
1: You know what? That is actually for violation of the Dyer Act, which Dyer. is— Yeah, so exactly. So they didn't get him on the white slavery charge, as they called it, the Mann Act. They got him on transporting the stolen vehicle across state lines. It would just be grand larceny, but because he crossed Mm -hmm. state lines Mm -hmm. with it, it was a federal charge, uh, the Dyer Act. So Frank entered Levensworth as number 40120 and the name Royal Addison Wheeler. And a letter was actually written to Governor C. Ben Ross, Cowboy Ben, on December 26, 1931. That states, I am writing you as I am among the anxious. My boy, Frank Wilcox, you pardon, from the Boise Pen. He was working his way home, said he traveled the highway, and caught rides. It was firstly hard he couldn't get work. At last, he got a job on a ranch in Wyoming. The last letter, he said his wife wrote and asked for money, and he didn't know how to send it. He didn't have much. Well, he wrote and told me and said he was leaving soon. He would write when he knew where he would be himself. I think that was September. I haven't heard a word, and am worrying for fear he has been killed. If I knew, I would not feel so bad. You wrote and asked me to let you know how he is doing. He wrote to his boys, and she hounds him for money, since I think she might have threatened to let the people know where he had been if he didn't send it. I think perhaps that's the reason he left his job, for he liked it. Can you in any way help to find him? I have no means to do with. If he is in trouble, I want to know where he is, and if dead, I want to know. I will be very grateful to you. I trust to the best. I am sincerely his mother, Lulu Pulver, Beaver Dam, New York. End quote. So the governor actually passed the letter on to the penitentiary to Warden Ari e. Thomas, who responded on January 6, 1932, to Mrs. Lulu Pulver in Beaver Dam, New York. Quote, your letter of the twenty sixth ultimo addressed to His Excellency Governor C. Ben Ross regarding your son Frank L. Wilcox has been referred to me for answer. You may rest easy, as your son has not met a violent death, but is now in the United States Penitentiary at Leavensworth, Kansas, as Roy Addison Wheeler, number four zero one two zero, being sent up from Kansas City, Missouri, for stealing an automobile and given term of four years. Very respectfully yours, warden, end quote. And that is the last thing that I know about Royal Wheeler. I don't know how long he spent at the federal penitentiary. I don't know what he did when he was released. It honestly is the last uh, point that I know. And it's this letter that I'm not even sure it is actually from his mother, who hmm. it might actually be from, or if it's something that he wrote, hoping to get more details about like <laughs> anything so that he can get off and start his old career again i i have no idea i don't know when he died i've looked for every royal wheeler royal addison wheeler frank wilcox all the different names that he used and that he was incarcerated under and i could not pin down a life after prison for him or his eventual death so Honestly, it is a mystery, and I spent so many hours, and like you said, kind of diagramming all the pieces of paper, trying to figure out what is the truth, and in the end realized that I don't know if we're meant to know it, and I think that was his whole intention. (laughs)
0: Mm. What a weird couple. Right? Like, they're kind of weird people. (laughs) (laughs) I don't... I don't understand.
1: And that's coming from a couple of weird people, too. Absolutely.
0: I will be the first to admit I am one of the weirdest people you'll ever meet. Hey, same. Oh, my Which God. Which is why we've made this podcast. Just it a is, couple of is. weirdos. Um, yeah, wow. so interesting. And I think, you know, we really connected a few puzzle pieces, and I don't know if it helped, but it, <laughs> <laughs> it did something to the story.
1: Honestly, I had been looking forward to telling this story and then I tried to get you know because it's usually I get my nose to the grindstone. I've got a mm-hmm. date. I've got to have this all done. And I had to give up. It's it's mm-hmm. one of those stories that I hope that some someday somebody else will pick this up and find the truth. And you know, yeah. but honestly, I just had to stop because I was like, this guy is driving me crazy. And I can only imagine what authorities a hundred years ago were saying as they're calling through his records and. Mm-hmm contacting wardens and and sheriffs and all these different officials throughout the country like, do you know this guy? Mm -hmm. Check out these fingerprints. Are they in your system? What Mm -hmm. name is it under? And when his alias list literally says hundreds, Hundreds. like, oh my gosh. man. It's so fascinating, but
0: Listen, I almost gave up on trying to figure out these family relations and I was like, there's no way I can give up on this. (laughs) This is too interesting. But it took, it seriously like, Because especially with the fact that her husband is the grandson of her mother and stepfather. Uh Like, I could, for the life of me, could not figure out what that made them. It took me Mm. probably two hours simply to be like, I don't understand. Like, where does this, where does this fit? And I think, if I remember correctly, the Valders are traced back to the Netherlands. Like, though her stepfather's father was an immigrant from the Netherlands, so they were Dutch. Oh. Um, not that that explains anything. I just thought that was an interesting fact. Um, yeah, it was so wild. And I was as soon as I found this, I was like, this family relation is the craziest thing I've ever researched for this podcast, <laughs> which yeah. I've researched a lot of crazy things. So, yeah, I mean, super interesting couple, even though they were in for a pretty bland crime i guess you could say
1: right i know that's it it's just like
0: like the the certifying with the stamp seems the 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 least exciting part of their stories
1: the amount of work that they did to create these fake checks Mm -hmm. if they had just invested like Mm -hmm. that artistry Mm -hmm. and like skill in Mm -hmm. a real job Mm -hmm. uh, we we wouldn't be doing this episode it's It's just so pointless. Like, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was. They they could have like written novels with their creative writing yeah, I mean, I and wonder because talking.
0: I because it doesn't seem that Mildred herself was overly inclined to commit crimes. It seems it yeah. only happens after she gets married. Mm-hmm. And so Frank is definitely. Yeah,
1: I think the driving force in that. Yeah. yeah.
0: I don't know. It's just such an interesting story that I didn't expect. I feel like even when I wrote this bio, I was like, oh, like this story isn't very interesting, and then. I dug deeper and I was like, "Oh, I was, I was wrong." Yeah. But anyway, huh? Well, I mean, I think that's maybe one of the best or most interesting couples episodes we've done in a while.
1: For sure. Nice work, guys. Yeah, same to you. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, you did so good. I, I apologize for all the question marks in mine because I was like,
0: "What is going on?"
1: I'm. It was fun Listen. though.
0: I get it. I get it. Again, (laughs) half of these women, I'm like, oh, they disappeared. That's all I got. Right. (laughs) So, yeah. No, I Uh thought it was great.
1: All right, everybody. Thank you all for listening. Do your own time.
0: Do your own number.
1: We'll talk to you next week.
0: If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.